Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. Our text this morning comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verses 17 to 33. Todd's already sort of touched on it, but uh, it'll be good for us to hear it. Genesis 18, beginning at verse 17. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? No. For I have chosen him, that he may change or charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And then the Lord said, I guess out loud now, How great is the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah, and how very grave their sin. I must go down and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men, or possibly angelic beings, there's one's identified as the Lord, and then there's two others who have visited Abraham and his at his tent. So these... Uh, Two turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. I'm going to stop just for a second here and say that the uh, earliest uh, manuscripts of the Hebrew Bible actually have this, that the Lord remained standing before Abraham. And that may seem like a small point to us, but for uh, the ancient Jewish culture, who's standing before whom is kind of an important thing. And so actually it was Jewish scribes who changed the original Hebrew from um, the Lord standing before Abraham and inverted it to Abraham standing before the Lord, which would be the more expected posture of the human. So again, I just want to say that in the original, we have this kind of surprising where the Lord apparently was standing before Abraham, which fits with what's about to happen. If that didn't make any sense to you, it's okay. We'll just go on. Then Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will then you uh, sweep away the place and not forgive it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous fare just like the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? It gets a little carried away here. And the Lord said, Well, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will forgive the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered, Let me take it upon myself to speak to my Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of those 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And God said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, Abraham spoke to God, well, suppose 40 are found there. And the Lord answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then Abraham said, uh, don't let my Lord be angry if I speak. Let's say 30 are found there. And the Holy One answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. 
And Abraham said, well, let me take it upon myself to speak to my Lord. Let's say 20 are found there. And God answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham said, oh, don't let my Lord be angry if I speak just one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. And the Lord answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Oh God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and guide in these next few moments as we um, ponder together the mystery of this conversation. We ask in Jesus' holy name. And all of God's people shall say, Amen. You know, way back when I was a uh, doctoral student at Emory University in Atlanta, I was privileged to study under a rabbi there by the name of uh, Dr. David Blumenthal. Uh, Dr. Blumenthal has been a, a really profound influence in my life, but this morning I just want to share one little snippet from our history of interactions. One semester I got to do a directed study with him, so, and it was just on the writings of the rabbis in what we call the Talmud. Some of you have heard of the Talmud. It's a collection of about 500 years worth of rabbinic argumentation, questions, answers, debates. It's just an amazing body of literature. And uh, what I noticed as I was studying was how often these rabbis would answer a question with a question. Just an awful lot. And it really got my attention. Finally, one day I decided to ask him about that. I said, Dr. Blumenthal, I've been reading this stuff and I love it, but, uh, and I, I kind of get the pedagogical value of this, but, but why is it that so often the rabbis answer questions with questions? And I tell you, here's what he answered. Why do you ask? <laughs> it's true. Turns out that the rabbis come by this habit very honestly because they were extremely careful readers of their Bible. And the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is just jam-packed with questions. And very often the questions are posed by none other than God. Last week, my friend and colleague, Dr. Stephanie Smith Matthews, did a terrific job reflecting with you all about some of those God questions, like, where are you? Why is your face so long? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Where is your brother? What have you done? That's already a boatload of questions. And she even left out one of my favorites. So who told you you were naked? I've always liked that one a lot. <laughs> Stephanie also alluded to the passage from which Todd preached so very well two weeks ago, the parable of the compassionate Samaritan. You might recall that this parable is actually spurred into existence by a question from an expert in the Torah. And his question was simple, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Now it sounds like a very theoretical question. You know, a lot of ethics could be spun out of that question. But Jesus answers the question with this story, a story we all know. And uh, that's kind of what narrative theology is all about, like just telling stories to get at deep theological or even ethical and moral issues. And remember that Jesus then, after he tells the story, takes that question 
that very question, who is my neighbor? And he turns it upside down, inside out, and then basically just blows it up and asks this question, so who proved to be the neighbor to the one who is in need? From the question, who is my neighbor, so I know where I can draw the line between neighbor and non-neighbor, to who proved to be the neighbor. And if you take on that role, everyone literally becomes your neighbor because you have become the neighbor to them. Am I willing to become the neighbor to all those I encounter on life's way? Now, I may have told you this before from this pulpit. I'm not sure. I say it a lot. But I love questions. I got to tell you, I love questions. And I love that Scripture presents us with a God who asks them. Now, we might be correct to assume that God doesn't ask questions like, where are you or where is your brother in order to gain some missing information. We generally assume that God knows all things, and that's one of the things that makes God, God. And I think we're probably pretty right to assume that, although I'm going to push at that in the next few weeks a little bit, just for fun. But I think these texts say more to us than just that uh, God asks rhetorical questions. There's more going on here. I got two ideas I want to suggest to you very quickly. I think, first of all, God, our maker, our sustainer, as we've already uh, prayed this morning, kind of tries to, I would say, jumpstart a sense of accountability or responsibility in human beings with these ancient questions, like, where are you? The Bible testifies of a God who desires conversation, give and receive, real and honest interaction with us. A former pastor of mine said that when God asked, where are you, it was way less a question of location and way more a question of relation. Where are you? God has created us to be creatures who can give an answer, who can respond, who can speak when spoken to, who can give an account, an accounting of our lives and our everyday actions. And thus a question like, where is your brother? Or who proved to be the neighbor to the one who is in need? But I think it goes even deeper than that. Yes, God is trying to instill in us a sense of accountability for ourselves. But I think these questions that God asks also emerge from kind of a, I want to say a pained heart, a heart of pathos. Where are you is the desperate question of a parent seeking a wayward child rather than this thunderous rhetorical question fired off from some distant omnipotence just trying to scare us into submission. There's a kind of vulnerability in God's question, a pained heart when God asks, where is your brother? Or this one to Cain, listen can you not hear your brother's blood crying out from the ground? Wow. I do love this image of God as the great asker of questions. Questions are fun because they open up a whole horizon of possibilities, don't they? Maybe not all questions, but the really good ones do. And for a long time, I've had this kind of working definition of what a good question is. 
A good question is better than any answer you can give to it. That's a good question. And I think the Bible's filled with some really good questions. And I love how questions, notice this, put us on a, a quest, a search for new truth, new insight, fresh perspectives and possibilities. And very often, even if we come up with a satisfactory reply to a question that's been bugging us, we find that that answer comes with its own new batch of questions, like the horizon continues to recede from us. And I think that's part of the adventure of being human. But our scripture this morning reminds us of a beautiful truth, and that is that God is not only the asker of questions, but is also willing to be asked, as Todd has already touched on so nicely in his children's sermon. God is willing to be interrogated, to be asked hard questions. I mean, if God can ask us, where are you? I think it's okay for us, yes, at times, certainly, to ask God, where are you? Where were you when? And I think we've all probably had that question at some point or another. So this passage this morning actually does begin with another God question, but this is one of those rare instances where God asks God the question, which is really interesting. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations, all the various peoples or ethnicities of the earth shall be blessed in him. Isn't that interesting? God asking God, huh, what should I do? God kind of mulling over a possibility here. Now I want to say that doesn't really square with most of our traditional ideas about God. Wouldn't God already know like from eternity what's going on and what God's going to do? Isn't it already laid out in some perfect plan somewhere? God's just sort of following out a plan that admittedly God created. I don't know. I'm just telling you. Here in Genesis, God is mulling something over. So regardless of how you come down on a question like that, and I think we will come back to that kind of question in the weeks to come, again, what we find here is uh, the Bible presenting us with what I'd say a dynamic God. That is a timeful, interactive, creative God. A creator who is always creating in creative interchange with this world in which we live the world of time and events and possibilities. I believe this has to do with our conviction that God is love. Love invests in the beloved, in creatures of time and space like us. This God of love loves to dwell with us in all of our struggles and questions and messiness of life. I believe that with all my heart. So we see that God does indeed, after mulling it over, decide to let Abraham in on what's going on in the divine mind. After all, if Abe is going to be the father of many nations, many ethnicities, then maybe it's time to enlist him as kind of a consultant. And Abraham plays his part perfectly. Will you sweep away the righteous along with the wicked? Far be it from you to do such a thing, Abraham says twice to God. Far be it from you to do such a thing. 
And then the classic question, and I mean, I think one of the truly great human questions ever posed to God, and it's right here in the Bible. The rabbis would have said, if it wasn't in scripture, we couldn't have said this, but here it is. Shall not the judge of all the earth do justly? Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just and right? Oh my goodness, in the Jewish tradition, this is called chutzpah, which is like a whole lot of nerve. A whole lot of nerve. One might legitimately wonder what this poor human being thinks he knows about justice when standing in the presence of a holy God. But it's great, isn't it, that God does not slap Abraham down? God does not put Abe in his place. God listens to the argument. By the way, that great founder of the Methodist movement, John Wesley, quoted this very line from Abraham. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? In his arguments against the Calvinist doctrine of predestination. Wesley did not think it would be just or right or loving for God to arbitrarily assign some people to salvation and then the rest to damnation. That would not be justice, Wesley in insisted. And his Calvinist foes would reply that no human being, no puny human, can dictate what is just to God. God is the one who sets the standard. But Wesley stood his ground. Like Abraham long before him, John Wesley believed that we have the right and the responsibility to expect God to behave justly. And that is pretty amazing. It's one of the classic passages in all of Scripture. Oh, my goodness. As Abraham continues to whittle down the theoretical number of righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah that would be needed to spare the cities. 45? Can I get a 40? How about 30? Uh, what if there's just 20? And then like, uh, excuse me, dust and ashes here, but like, what if you could only find 10? What about 10? And at least some of the rabbis believe that Abraham could have taken it all the way down to just one. But he didn't want to push it, I guess. Not quite that much chutzpah. So starting out at 50 and getting it down to 10, I think Abraham felt pretty good about that. Some good bartering going on there. And isn't that amazing, that interchange? Oh my goodness. It's so classic in all of the Bible. In fact, uh, it's, it becomes all that more striking when you compare it to the Quran having the very same story. Okay? Now, the Quran was written centuries later, and we go into all that, but you know, the, 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 the holy text of Islam. The Quran has this story, and in that version, Abraham has just been informed by an angel of God of God's plan to destroy the cities. And in the Quran, it's referred to as the children of Lot. They're not cities by name, but the children of Lot. That's important here. So in the words of the Quran, and I quote, Abraham then began to make mention of the children of Lot. Now, it says, Abraham was submissive, humble, and obedient. Like, like three adjectives, just getting him down here like this. And then the angel said to Abraham, 
Don't speak of the children of Lot, for God has already determined their fate, and nothing you can say can change it. Wow. That's a world of difference. Suffice it to say that in the story of God, as the Bible tells it, our God is a God of conversation, of questions and replies, of challenges, of dialogue and interaction. What you say and what I say, what you do and what I do, all matter to God and matter to the world that God is making right now. You are a part of creation, and God's creation is an ongoing project. It's an ongoing conversation. It's an ongoing story. It's not a done deal. Where things go next depends at least a little bit on what you and I do next. Maybe that's why God asks us these questions. Not forcing us, but asks us questions like, where are you? Where is your brother? What have you done? It's because you matter in this ongoing story of God, and you and I have a role to play. Well, we probably remember that things still don't turn out well for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but I'm thinking about those rabbis who believe that Abraham could have whittled it down just to one, to one righteous person that God would have forgiven and spared the cities for the sake of one. And I don't mean to pretend that I have this all figured out, but basically what we believe as Christians is that there has indeed been that one. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Romans 5. God's grace has come by the obedience of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowing to the many, like the many right here, for just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, Jesus, the many will be made righteous, that grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace, obedience, righteousness, eternal life, the good news this morning is that all those great New Testament concepts do not cancel out God's desire for conversation, for communion, for a little give and receive living in our midst, even some wrestling, as we'll talk about next week, with us in our lives. For that matter, as I close, I'd like to suggest that those concepts like grace, obedience, righteousness, eternal life, make the most sense when we understand them relationally. That is, precisely in terms of our ongoing, adventurous relations with God and with all the folks around us, certainly including all of our sisters and brothers at St. Paul's United Methodist Church. Living together in the presence of God means that God will keep asking us questions, and we can keep on asking questions of God. And maybe we can be bold to ask a few of one another as well. Let's stay on that quest. Let us pray. Search us, O God, we pray, and know our hearts.
Try us, examine us, we ask humbly, and know our thoughts, and see if there be within us any hurtful or destructive way. And lead us, we pray, lead us instead in the everlasting way. We ask this humbly in the name of Jesus, the one who said, I am the way. Give us grace to follow. And all of God's people shall say,